This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Aro Kwan, author of the novel The Incendiaries, which tells the story of three young adults whose lives intersect at a prestigious university. Phoebe and Will meet and fall in love under the shadow of Phoebe's mother's death, and Will's difficulty fitting in and coming to terms with his own loss of Christian faith. As they navigate their relationship and personal sorrows, Phoebe is drawn into an extremist cult run by the enigmatic John Leal. As Phoebe moves deeper into fundamentalism, Will devotes his efforts to saving her. Aro Kwan spent 10 years writing The Incendiaries. We began the discussion with Kwan talking about the genesis of the novel. Well, I grew up very Christian, and I left the faith when I was 17. And um, and like like Will, um, like one of the central characters, I also believed I would grow up to be a missionary or a pastor, something along those lines. Losing that faith was, was, was incredibly painful. Um, and I think I wanted to, with this book, from the start, I wanted to give witness both to how painful it was to lose that faith as well as to how wonderful it was to believe back when I did believe. What was that process for you of losing your faith? I mean, I doubt it happens all at once. It's probably a gradual process, but what was that like for you and and your family? In some ways, those are the most directly autobiographical parts of the book. Emotionally autobiographically, I'd say, um, not just not in terms of like sort of like each fact of my life matching up to Will's, which it really doesn't. But losing that faith, it, it's like what Will says in the book that it happened gradually and then all at once. There was no big incident. There was no. Um, there was no, there was no particular crisis. It was just, it was, a, it was a gradual accumulation of questions that I increasingly found to be unanswerable. Now that you're more separated from that sort of gradual all at once moment, are you happier with your life? That's an interesting question. <laughs> uh, let's see. By and large, I was happier when I believed. Um, I mean, it's just the story is so, so lovely, right? There's a, there's a, there's an all, all powerful being, um, who knows everything and will make sure everything goes okay. No one you love will ever die. Um, everyone you've lost will be returned to you. That, that was a very different way to live than how I live now. Yeah, and happy is a hard term because happy, maybe there's this expectation that we're happy, but I mean, to say that we're happy is a really hard goal to achieve. I'm not sure that being happy is a particularly important goal for me. Um, I'd say it's more important to me that I be working, that I, if I'm writing consistently, then, then I'm in, then I know I'm in a better place. And if I'm not writing consistently, so it's more important to me that I have time to do the work I want to do, um, than that I'd be happy per se. <laughs> I had a French teacher in, in, um, in college who went off on a riff about how, She'll never understand why Americans are so obsessed with happiness and that happiness is, I don't, I should have, I should have written down the whole riff. I thought it was very funny, but it stayed with me. The incendiaries Mm -hmm. has three voices. They are college age. They're at a college. It's an upscale sort of place where generally most people seem to have a similar background. And you have three characters, Phoebe, Will, and John Leal. These three characters are telling their version of the story that involves 
their school, Christianity, losing Christianity, a cult, and the repercussions of that cult. I worked on it for 10 years. So there was a lot of, the book went through a lot of changes across that time frame. So for the first two years, the book was told entirely from the woman, from Phoebe Lynn's point of view. And at that point, it was a much more sort of internal, meditative book with a, with a melancholic woman wandering around thinking about the nature of an absent God. Um, and then I threw that away after those two years. I still had more or less the same characters in place, but I found that once I started externalizing my own obsessions with belief and with varieties of belief and with how it's even possible to bridge um, gulfs between people who believe differently, once I started externalizing some of that, the book really started coming to life for me. And that's when that's when a, I think that's when the cult started making its way in. That's when um, the idea of a terrorist bombing started making their way in. So we have Phoebe, we have Will, and we have John, and we hear mm-hmm. all of their voices. Can you talk about a little bit about each? So the book is, at its core, it's about a woman, Phoebe Lynn, um, who gets involved with a group of fundamentalist Christians. It turns out to be a radical group, uh, a radical group, a cult with ties to North Korea, and the cult ends up bombing five abortion clinics, healthcare clinics, in the name of faith. Um, and so, as you said, the book's narrated in turn by three people. So Phoebe Lynn is one of them, the woman. There's a cult leader, John Leal, um, who is the one with sort of enigmatic, who has an enigmatic past involving or possibly involving North Korea. Um, and there's Wynne Kendall, who is the man who loves Phoebe and who hates the cult and what it represents. In the very beginning, Phoebe says recollection is half invention. And mm. that's right at the beginning when the reader starts getting into it. And there's this sort of sense, I think, for the reader of instability. We There are actual lies that the reader knows are lies. But there's also that failure of memory, that unreliability, that kind of shifting ground. And I'm wondering if you could talk about creating this Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I was and am very interested in the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and how and where those stories can depart from how others see us. I very much wanted the book to have a reason to exist even inside the fictional world of the book. And so in a lot of ways, and people have had different readings um, of this, but in a lot of ways, for me, I was thinking of the book as Will, um, as, a, as, as Will trying to understand what happened, Will trying to tell himself the story of what happened, Will trying to, um, like, a part explanation, part confession, part self-exoneration. Um, because of that, there, there is maybe quite a bit of unreliability that, that starts slipping in. Yeah, I feel like it starts with that because when we very begin... Will is using the conditional tense. So Will becomes the boyfriend of Phoebe, and Phoebe's the one that gets enmeshed in this cult. And he is so in love with her. It's it's not just that he loves her. It's also kind of that tenderness of first love and finding acceptance in this community at the school that they go to. And he is talking about Phoebe in speculative terms, like she would have been sitting here, she could have. So you know it's in his imagination. So you're already kind of destabilized. I truly don't believe that there's any such thing 
as a reliable narrator when I'm reading. Um, and even the most dispassionate seeming third person omniscient narrator, I mean, they, they still have a point of view. They still have a personality. They're still picking out certain parts of the story to tell versus others. I'm always so fascinated at the end of the day when, you know, if I'm having dinner with a friend and they ask, how was your day? And I'm fascinated by the ways in which my brain picks through the day and picks out what to tell about the day, you know, like what, what part of it is worth being a story. When I read and when I write, I'm so much less interested in the what of what happens than in the why and the how. And with this book, I very much wanted to get sort of like one of the major what's what happens out of the way as fast as I could. Um, so that, so that, so that a reader um, could focus more on the how and the why. So Will, he is entranced by Phoebe. And I got this sense when Phoebe first met him that she could sort of take him or leave him. She had this experience in the beginning of school that many people probably have where she's just kind of out and partying and meeting lots of guys and having lots of flings. And then she meets Will and he's so intense and serious about her. But you also get this sense as they are together and eventually live together that he never quite has her. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about his relationship with her and what you wanted to create. I, I, I rarely feel as though I'm creating. I feel much more as though I'm discovering. Writing feels like a slow, sometimes painful revelation. It feels a lot more like a slow discovery than inventing for me. I almost feel, emphasis on the almost, I almost feel as though a book that I'm working on um, pre-exists me in an ideal form and that every sentence exists in an ideal form. And it's my job to find my way toward them. Again, almost. <laughs> I wonder if part of that is is just that it, it's more consoling to think of that way because there's then there's an answer, you know, like there's there's a finish line. Um, in terms of the characters, I didn't have, and their relationship with one another, I didn't really have sort of overarching desires about how I wanted them to interact or what they were to one another. It felt much more as though I, I was discovering real people. I forget who it was. I was just reading this. Um, somebody said something about how in a lot of relationships, there is somebody who waits and there's someone who's waited upon, which I really loved. In some ways, that's how Will and Phoebe are. For both of them, it's their, it's, it's their first relationship, more or less. And they both fall in love with each other, um, in some ways very deeply, Will perhaps more deeply than Phoebe. Um, Will is drawn to a lot about Phoebe, but one, I think one of the things he does love about her is is how alive she seems. Phoebe grew up with a very disciplined upbringing. She thought she was going to become a professional pianist. Um, she practiced hours a day. Piano was her life. And after she leaves her music, she has she feels as though she's like lost a great deal of that sort of structure to her life. Um, and Will doesn't lack for discipline. Will doesn't lack for structure. And I think part of that is what draws Phoebe to him. At one point in the book, Phoebe says, I've quit asking questions. And I like that line because it's like in it is the weight that she has been asking questions. And then that feeling that she's been that she's giving up, that's sort of an internal thing. And then there's the external realities of her life that she came to school. She's not doing well with her grades. And now she's deep in with this community. Again, I hesitate to generalize because people seek out religion for 
a variety of reasons. But I think at least for Phoebe, she wants answers. And she wants answers that before John Leal, she couldn't quite result. She couldn't, that she wasn't able to find. And John Leal and his cult do offer very clear answers that the end Phoebe finds this to be appealing. It was interesting because two of your characters had either difficult mothers or mothers who had died early and absent fathers. I can't speak that much for John Leal because we don't get that much insight into him. But what is your curiosity about these things? Sometimes in with my fiction, I think I'm interested in exploring some of my greatest fears. And one of my greatest fears has always been that my mother, who I'm very close to, um, would would die. Um, and she... And she is, knock on wood, she's she's alive. I've written short stories over and over again in which mothers die. Um, And I'm currently working on a novel, my second novel. I've been working on it for two years, two and a half years. And there is a couple that's starting to drift apart, in part because the husband, half of the couple, um, wants to have a child. And the woman, the wife, doesn't. And they'd agreed long ago that they didn't want children. And I think that that kind of... Again, I think I'm playing with one of my greatest fears that that, um, that that kind of that my path could diverge that sharply from from someone I love. The influence of the the lost or sick mothers and the absent fathers, I think, make them both vulnerable in different ways. And for Phoebe, she had more culpability and guilt around her mother's death that made her probably more susceptible to entering this cult. And I'm wondering where that intersection for you came with the appeal of her to enter this radical Christian cult, how that intersected with her own vulnerability. Yeah. um, No, I think you, I think what you're saying is exactly right. Um, I think that people, I, I, I really do hesitate to generalize about people in general, but at least these people, the people, the, the characters in my novel. Um, Phoebe has lost a great deal. Phoebe's in a, in a lot of pain. Um, and I think that when people are are in pain and have lost um, and have, have endured great losses, they tend to become more open to different kinds of answers than the ones that they've previously turned to. And so Phoebe is more vulnerable, but she's also more open to to different ways of being. You know, this is like the psychology of cults in general everywhere. You know, they don't usually get really strong-willed people who are super grounded in all their beliefs to join cults. What was interesting to me kind of about this cult was that a lot of it was just simple Christianity. So as a reader, it made me think about true Christians and that line between what is considered a cult and what is considered a religion. I, I don't know that I, I think of it um, necessarily as a line. I think it's more like a spectrum. A cults, cults, of course, tend to be um, very harmful. They they do have a lot in common. Their um, cults have authoritarian leaders. They tend not to tolerate questioning. They tend to be um, extremely absorbing. Yeah, those are some of the some of the characteristics. And was there an interest in particular for you that the center of their cult 
or the area where they were protesting was abortion? So how that happened was I was at that two-year mark when I started throwing away everything I had, and I was rethinking how to what this book was going to be and sort of how how it could be told. Um, well, I was volunteering very briefly just for a day as a patient escort um, at uh, Planned Parenthood. Um, and a patient escort, for anyone who doesn't know, is somebody who walks who walks people back and forth. So I was walking people back and forth from the from the parking lot um, past protesters. And at least that day, um, everyone who was protesting, like from their signs and the things they were saying, um, I, they were all Christian as far as I could tell and were basing their protest on their Christianity. And I felt this nearly physical split um, in my body between who I used to be and who I was and who I was as a patient escort, um, because not that long ago, I, I would have sympathized with these protesters. Um, I would have, I subscribed to at least some of their beliefs and then as a patient escort. And now I, I very much don't, um, I mean, I have a, I, I have a recurring donation to Planned Parenthood. <laughs> um, and I think that split that I felt in my body between who I was and who I now I am, um, that, started to make its way into my book. Um, and I was, and I just started thinking about how that's just one of the most visible ways differences in faith in America, um, are, can be incredibly divisive. So you said earlier that you're very close to your mom and I'm wondering about the impact of leaving Christianity for you was with, with her. So we're, we're, again, we're very close. We've always been very close. Um, she's, she, she prays for me a lot. Um, and she's pretty much convinced that maybe tomorrow or like Friday, I'll, I'll return to the faith. <laughs> she thinks this is sort of like a short lived rebellion, um, that like juvenile rebellion, that's just going to pass. And yeah, so we, so we differ on that point. But you just probably just don't talk about it. No, she, we talk about it. So like, I, my parents have been, um, they're, they're wonderfully supportive and they're so excited about this book being out in the world. Um, and I forward them like every review and interview I do, I'll forward them, I'll forward them like our conversation as well. Like they listen to and read everything. And so often if I've had, you know, if I've had like a, a review that makes me happy or, or just any sort of, um, good news, my mother will often write back and say like, well, that's because your mother was praying for you. <laughs> like, like your mother did it. Because she was praying for you, so God did it. And yeah, no, it's it's still very much talked about. I'm curious a little bit more about your writing process because it sounds like you started with this experience from your own life of this break from Christianity, and then it evolved into these three characters. And you say that these things sort of come to you, like they're kind of existing already and I know but then how how would you explain the process of what comes and what's deliberate sometimes when I when I think about talking about writing process and how and how things come about it does feel as though um it's like the joke that people make about about writing about music that it's like dancing about architecture it sometimes feels that way to me because I like I, I, I truly don't understand how a paragraph goes from feeling like a heap of unworkable chaos to something that, that, that can stick around, you know? <laughs> um, and for me, it just comes about after like a lot of 
revising and a lot of reworking um, and just staying at it over and over and over again until a sentence starts to feel alive and solid. You said earlier that it can take you a day to work on one sentence. Is that a fulfilling writing day? And what are your writing days generally like? So I, I find the, the early drafts of a book to be, um, by and large, to be relatively um, painful. I, I don't like, I really do love to hang out with the language, to hang out with the sentences, to hang out inside the syllables even. Like the early drafts when I'm trying to work as fast as I can, um, because I know I'm, everything's going to be thrown away anyway. I, that's not fun for me. Um, that's not where I'm the most fulfilled. And so if I do spend a day working on a sentence or two, um, and I emerge and, and, and it's really absorbed my attention, then that's, then that's the best kind of writing day for me. Um, but that's if it, that's if it's absorbed my attention. I feel as though there, that it's, it's the greatest joy I know, um, is to be truly wrapped up in the work and to just completely, when I'm, when I'm really in it, when I'm really in a sentence and, re- and I'm really in the syllables, um, I do sort of, I lose all sense of an eye. Um, I lose all sense of ego and it's, it's as close as I can get to, um, to a religious state anymore. And, um, but I don't know how to get there other than to keep trying. <laughs> I can't like, I can't just like park myself there, you know? So can you read a passage from an author that speaks to or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, of course. Um, this is one that, well, I'll read a passage from Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, um, which I love this book. And there is a particular passage in there that meant a lot to me and means a lot to me. Um, and it's toward the end when one of the characters is talking to um, another character. Well, a non-believer is talking to the minister in the book. Um, and this is what the non-believer says. Does it seem right to you, he said, that there should be no common language between us? that there should be no way to bring a drop of water to those of us who languish in the flames or who will. Granting your terms, that between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. How can capital T truth not be communicable? That makes no sense to me. Tell me a little bit more about why you chose that. I think that, I remember when I first read that, I was I was starting grad school and that just, I loved I loved what it conveys, the pain that it conveys of people who, um, because in this, in this book, um, Jack, who's the one who's speaking, he, he wants to believe, but he can't. And he's like, he's like talking to a minister who's his godfather. He, he himself is raised, was raised by a pastor. He's just like surrounded by devout Christians. Um, but it doesn't work for him. And throughout, and the book is sort of shot through with this kind of pain in this character. And I, I'm so interested in these gulfs um, and with this book, with the incendiaries, insofar as I had any sort of overarching um, purpose for the book or, or, or anything I wanted to do with the book other than on the language level, um, I was, I did very much hope to um, provide a, a kind of imaginative bridge between people who believe differently and to, and to depict varieties of belief and disbelief. Can you read a passage you wrote, maybe it was tricky or hard to write, which sounds like most of yours were, or changed a <laughs> lot from the first draft? Yeah, sure. Um, I thought I'd actually just read a bit from that first chapter since it, um, since, yeah, since, since in a way it took two years to get there. One will, 
They'd have gathered on a rooftop in Knoxhurst to watch the explosion. Platt Hall, I think, 11 floors up. I know his ego, and he'd have picked the tallest point he could. So often, I've imagined how they felt, waiting. With six minutes left, the slant light of dusk reddened the high old spires of the college, the level gables of its surrounding town. They poured festive wine into big-bellied glasses. Handshaking, they laughed. She would sit apart from this reveling group, cross-legged on the roof's west ledge. Three minutes to go, two, one. The Phipps building fell. Smoke plumed the breath of God. Silence followed, then the group's shouts of triumph. And I'll stop there. Do you want to say anything else about that? It was just wonderful to me that the book, that this first part of the book um, came to me in a day after those two years of feeling very lost and really just working t- over 20 pages over and over again that I ended up throwing away. Um, and I could, I could really just see them for the first time. I could see the characters. I could see where they were on the roof. I could sense tensions between the different characters, um, even if I didn't quite know what they were yet. Where do you write? I write um, at a desk I've set up in my dining room. Um, yeah, that's pretty much where. Sometimes I write in bed, too. Um, I like to have as few barriers as possible between me and my writing when I wake up. Um, and so if it's a day when I'm writing, I I love to – sometimes I just love to reach over, grab my laptop, and start working immediately. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, I, I don't necessarily crave getting away from writing. Um, by and large, I, I like, I, like, I'm so happy at artist residencies where, you know, where I can just work for hours and hours and hours a day. Um, that said, I do really love other than writing. Uh, the other thing I really love to do is to, is to climb. Um, and I go rock climbing at, uh, at a couple of local climbing gyms. Um, and part of what I do love about that is that when I'm climbing, there's no space in my head to think about writing or to worry about this book or the, my new book that I've been working on or any of it. Um, all I'm trying to do is stay alive. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, my husband's my first best reader. We've been together since college and he's been reading my work ever since. And how have you dealt with rejection? Now my agent and my publisher send out stories or and or essays but um back when I did it myself I used to meticulously log story submissions and I still do with residency applications and fellowship applications and I find that there's something about just having something to do when I receive a rejection like okay now I need to write this down um I have found to be very helpful I also used to have a rule again this is when I submitted a lot more work myself I used to have a rule that if I had a story rejection, for instance, or if I was rejected from a fellowship, that I needed to um, apply for something that day, which again gave me something to do. And what is your favorite word? I love almost all the words. They're like three words I don't like. Um, But (laughs) other than that, I love almost all of them. But a recent one, but one I recently learned that I I love is Warlight, um, which is also, of course, the title of Michael Andachi's new book, I haven't read the book yet. I, I bought it. I haven't read it yet, but I'm excited to read it, and I love his work. Um, and the word warlight, apparently it's the it's it's used to describe the light um, that comes out from the light that comes out from 
blackened windows. And so it's, 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 it's the kind of light you see during war when, when, when windows are blocked out, which I thought was haunting and, and sad, and, but also beautiful. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Aro Kwan, author of the novel The Incendiaries. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.